Running Light Ministry Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. You can support these podcasts by making a gift to the ministries at runninglight.org. Hey everybody, welcome to the Better Pleasure Podcast. This is episode number 143. And that was Peter Martin, <laughs> my wonderful partner in crime. Yeah. <laughs> the only person who will talk sex <laughs> in the Bible <laughs> that I can find on the planet. <laughs> right? And it's a rare friendship. <laughs> that's right. Right. Not too many friendships like this. <laughs> but we've been doing it for quite a while now. Yeah. And we have a lot of podcasts, obviously. We're getting, cruising up onto 150. Yeah. Which is a lot of podcasts. Oh, yeah. I mean, not quite like uh, the Joel Rogan show yeah, that's like, like 1,700. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but there, he's doing one it. Day. He's doing one a day. Yeah, yeah. But we're doing pretty good. And uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about a book that you're uh, reading, which yeah. is kind of neat because we like to talk about uh, feminism. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, we've done a lot of podcasts on uh, kind of the, the the good, the bad, and the ugly when it comes to feminism and the different waves of feminism. Yeah. And how it seems like the pendulum gets kind of pulled from one way to another. Mm. And it's a neat topic because the Bible has a lot of um, um, amazing passages that would throw um, a, uh, a maybe male uh, patriarchy more like a traditionalist perspective. Traditionalist perspective. Might yeah. throw it off a little bit. Absolutely, so you yeah. might read the Old Testament, and all of a sudden you're going to come upon a prophetess or two, or you'll come across a queen yeah. um, uh, in the empire of Israel, or I should say maybe the, you know, the country of Israel. Because um, um, I was just reading in the First Kings about um, Absalom's mom yeah. being a queen. Yeah. And uh, and so sometimes we think like women just have this certain role in ancient texts, mm-hmm. and uh, but uh, the Bible would throw you off a bit because it does have these amazing passages, um, including Deborah and different people yeah. that you would read about and go, wow, they really have uh, a very important uh, uh, place. Right. Uh, we even have books uh, that are named after women yeah um in the bible which uh i'm not sure if there's many other ancient texts (laughs) that actually have a woman's name right um uh, especially from so long ago right of a thousand years before christ right um so uh you know i think that's pretty radical as well right so um, there is a place, in a sense, for uh, the topic of feminism, yeah. um, certainly when we're cruising through the Bible. Right. Um, so what are you, what are you reading? Uh, what's so intriguing about it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, the book is called The Vindication of the Rights of Women. Uh, and it was written by a woman named Mary Wollstonecraft. And uh, W-O-O-L-L and then Stonecraft. And she is kind of like the first feminist ever, right? So she, there are other people who are feminists around her time, but she's the first intellectual that verbalized what feminism was all about. She was the first one to do that. And she's writing in the seventh, late 1700s, early 1800s. So uh, actually way before what we would traditionally call first wave feminism got off the ground, she already had these ideas articulated and was communicating them to the world at large. And she's a very bright woman. And what makes her really interesting is that she is a Christian. So once you get into like actual first wave feminists, like uh, Simone de Beauvoir is like a big one. And she was married to Albert Camus, right? You get into feminists who are not Christians. And actually a lot of feminists in the second wave, the third wave and the current wave are very anti-Christian establishment because they feel like it was Christianity that held back the rights of women. What's really unique about this book is that you have a Christian woman arguing for the rights of women from a Christian worldview, which makes it really radical and probably a reason why she's not read that much by modern-day feminists. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. You know what I mean? Because they wouldn't want to admit that the first arguments for feminism came from a Christian worldview. She's not an enlightenment thinker. She's not an atheist. 
This is a Christian woman making arguments for the liberation of women, specifically because she feels like it's a Christian ethical thing to do. Now, uh, just in my, uh, I have a question for you on yeah. this lady, and that is, um, you know, women's suffrage yeah. in in America. Um, I've always kind of read the the Christian foundations, especially from women in Canada, and 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 that were very much a part of the women's kind of freedom movement, mm. uh, the right to vote, and, and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and, and they were, you know, faith-rearing women, you know. <laughs> I mean, they, 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 that's how they were brought up. They yeah. believed in Christ. Yeah. They believed the Bible to be true. Yeah. And, they all, and, and is that why you think a lot of people don't really talk even about the roots of women's suffrage uh, that movement as well. I think so. Because it's so rooted in it's so rooted Christianity. In Christianity. And, uh, you know, I read a really great book like a month ago by a guy named Tom Holland, uh, not the actor, but a historian from Oxford, <laughs> called Dominion, which is about the Christian movement. And his idea, and it goes all the way from before Jesus' birth all the way to the modern age, and it's a really excellent book. He's, a, he's just an amazing historian. Mm. And when you go through it, he does talk about these movements of feminism, uh, the innovations of science, and his argument is that all these things come from Christian thought. And he's like, why is it, if Christianity is so anti-woman, why is it that Christian women are the ones who started it? Like, why is it coming from a Christian worldview? And he argues that it's like you only really get an idea that women ought to be liberated from a Christian worldview that states that men and women bear the image of God. And she actually makes that argument in this book. We're co-equal image bearers of God. Mm -hmm. So why aren't we liberated to have rights in, equa in, um, in equality with men? Mm -hmm. And why are we not being educated like men? That's her main argument. And I'll read a quote from her in a second. But he's arguing that you're not going to get that from China. Right. You're not going to have a Chinese female philosopher make that point. You're not going to get that from the Middle East. You're not going to get that from India. You're not going to get that from Native American tribes. You're not even going to get it from secular atheists. You're only going to get that from a Christian worldview that states men and women are co-equal before God, and they both equally bear the image of God in different facets mm. and femininity and masculinity. Yeah, and we've had, I think, good podcast on this idea of equality because it seems like the secularist today uses the term equality, mm. like we're equal, but they really don't define like equal to what? Right. Like what do they mean equal? Well, we, you know, you almost get the idea it's like whatever a guy can do, a girl can do as well. Right. But we all know that that's not true yeah <laughs> you know that we can't you know so it, it becomes a very arbitrary you know argument right you know there's not really a, a cohesive consistent argument being made right of why women are equal to men right um it's just like oh yeah well they can be ceos of companies right okay so is that what equality means <laughs> <laughs> they could do what a man could do yeah yeah or, or that they can be specifically a ceo of a company right you know because you can't make the argument that they can do everything that the other can do right because a man can't bear a child right no matter what people say right um We'll, we'll never be able to do that as good as a woman. <laughs> right? You know, it's, right, just, yeah. it's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, uh, there are certain things, obviously, that uh, men can do hmm. that are, um, as far as power, right? Uh, you know, goes horsepower, if you will, manpower. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we used to measure things that way yeah. uh, back in the day. Right. You know, um, well, you know, there's no such thing as women power, like, you know, like, let's put it into women power measurements. Right. You know, no, the ancient world used manpower, right. they used horsepower, right. you know, ox power probably. Yeah. <laughs> but that's because men have bigger muscles. Right. They have testosterone in their body. Yeah. So I, that, my point is, is that. I think today's secularist doesn't quite know exactly what they mean by equal. Now, the Bible says in the book of Galatians, hmm. uh, chapter 3, it tells us that 
um, there is neither slave nor free. Right. Uh, you know, barbarian, Scythian, we are all male or female. Right. For we are all one in Christ. Right. And uh, it's a really amazing passage yeah. because it puts uh, the most important um, way to be equal. Uh, uh, because the Bible stresses that eternity is eternal, right? Right. <laughs> then it is of utter value. Yeah, that we have equal access into the kingdom of heaven. Into the kingdom of heaven. And, and we so, have equal ability to serve God. Yeah, so that's why it's of most important, uh, uh, it's the most important type of equality. Right. Because it's an eternal Right. Uh, so if something's eternal, it's of much more value yeah. than something that's temporal. Right. So, um, so that's why the argument in Christianity is that this is the most vital kind of equality, right. and women are included right along with men. Right. So I'm going to read a quote from the book, and this is the kind of equality that she was arguing for. So yeah. very different than modern feminism, but uh, it's a it's a really cool quote. She says. Why should he, speaking of God, lead us from love of ourselves to the sublime emotions which the discovery of his wisdom and goodness excites? If these feelings were not set in motion to improve our nature, of which they make us a part, and render us capable of enjoying a more godlike portion of happiness, firmly persuaded that no evil exists in the world that God did not design to take place, I build myself on the perfection of God. Rousseau asserts, exerts himself to prove that all was right originally, a crowd of authors that all is right now, and I that all will be right. So her perspective, and this is really cool, she's saying that in the people she's fighting against, she's saying that the enjoyment of God, the pleasure of God, is something that we have access to as children of God, not just in the hereafter, but in the right now. And she's saying if women are not liberated to be able to be educated and to be able to have equal access to the creation of God, then they're not able to enter into his happiness in this life at the level that men are. And that's not fair. And she says that most people that were writing at her time had denied the idea of original sin. And they said, well, originally things were good and now we've kind of screwed things up and we're trying to get back to the original intent. And she, as a Christian, is thinking... Well, from the perspective of us as Christians, we believe that the Holy Spirit has now been poured out onto all flesh, right? Joel chapter 2. And the church now acts as God's ambassadors in this world. So doesn't it actually follow that we don't have to argue from the past, right? That's what these guys were doing. Well, this kind of thing has never existed in the past. What you're arguing for, Mary, has never happened. So we should never do it. And her argument is, but we have the Spirit. Something new has happened. God is filling the earth. Why isn't it plausible for us to do something new that might improve on the past? That's her argument. And it's it, when you read it, you're like, that's a really good point. <laughs> just, I've been reading it since last week, and I'm like, man, she makes a lot of really excellent points in this book. Yeah, she mentions Rousseau. Mm-hmm. So uh, well, She did not like Rousseau. <laughs> so Rousseau is saying that... Um, that we've just always screwed up in the past and we're going to make it better? So Rousseau wrote a book called Emile. And in it, he talks about raising a young boy. Mm-hmm. And at the end, he introduces this young boy to a girl named Sophie. And he argues about what the role between male and female are within a marriage. His perspective is that we're trying to get back to nature. Because nature is where things are perfect. And human society has screwed things up. Wow. So Rousseau's looking at the animal kingdom and he's like... Yeah, like totally. The male lion has a bunch. Of, he has a harem, you know. <laughs> and like, and he just kind of uses the lioness. That's, that's a great. That's a, I don't know if that would go over very well. <laughs> and he's looking at the bonobos, and he's like, "Man, they're having a bunch of chicks, and you know, so why?" And a bunch why, of guys. And a bunch of guys, you know. So we're enlightened people. We're strong men. Why can't we have like a bunch of women? And it's really fascinating because a lot of modern leftists get their roots from Rousseau. Yeah. And they, a lot of them don't know that that was actually the conclusion of his argument. Yeah. Was like, we're just going to go back to the state of nature. And when you look at the animal kingdom, that's what you see them doing. <laughs> so maybe this whole idea of monogamy and, you know, just uh, equality and stuff, maybe that's just some stupid Christian thing. So right. he's actually criticizing Christianity. 
the guy who's the patriarchy is criticizing Christianity and the woman who's pro-Christianity is defending Christianity and equality of women against the secular progressive. Mm. That's like the weird thing about this debate. Yeah. It's like it seems so contrary to what's going on today. Yeah, yeah, it's really bizarre it, <laughs> because it's almost like the secular progressive is mixed up. Right. Right? Right. They're, they, they're quoting people that are actually going against what they would think. Right. Because um, his argument, if you're an atheist, his argument makes sense. Right. We're just, sure. We're just an evolved animal. Right. Where do you see equality in the animal kingdom? Right. Right. Even, even in, you could point out uh, species where the females are the dominant, mm-hmm. but there's still not equality in those species. It's whatever is the strongest yeah. member of the species yeah. rules. Yeah. Well, uh, can you give me a animal that sits and reasons out what right. is equal? <laughs> right. What is equal? <laughs> right. you know, Why should we have rights? Are chimpanzees yeah. going, this? think about this for a minute right you know is that and, what's going on and even like there you could see the difference in what they feel like the purpose of life is yeah rousseau's idea because he's a secular atheistic guy now he he does give lip service to god like if you ever read his books he yeah. does give lip service but when you're reading him you're like you're not a christian you right. you you kind of are just in a culture that's christian so you have to use the word god but you're basically an atheist. Yeah. And his argument of the purpose of life is just the purpose of life is to be happy. Mm-hmm. That's it. And so whatever makes you happy, you should just kind of do. And so whatever provides for the best uh, kind of flourishing of mankind, per se, what would you say? That's what we should do. And so if I want to just propagate, my, it's, it's very like Dawkins, like Richard Dawkins, the selfish yeah. gene kind of thing. Oh. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, like an, it's like the atheist who's into Nietzsche. Right. 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 And it, it, the progressive, the secular progressive, yeah. <laughs> the green piecer who's into, you know, Nietzsche. Yeah. And and, and they don't really understand what he's saying. What he's saying. Yeah. Right. And uh, his whole idea of um, power. Right. And, um, you know, that uh, I was listening to his book. Um, oh, his real famous book. Um, Beyond Good and Evil. Yeah. Beyond yeah. Good and Evil. And, um, you know, you read that and... and um, I, I'm not sure you want to jump aboard. Yeah, no. I don't know if you want to hop on that dude's bus. Dude, there's this great quote from Beyond Good. Speaking of women's issues, there's a yeah. great quote from Beyond Good and Evil where he's like, you know, women have been in the kitchen for some time. You'd think that they would have learned something by now. And you're just like, oh, my gosh. Because his idea is just, again, it's it's very like Rousseau. It's like there's men and women. The What makes us happiest is power. And so, therefore... The person who has the most power has gets to call the shots, essentially. Yeah. And so Nietzsche's idea is men are more powerful than women. And so women should just do whatever men want them to do, right? And if, yeah. if your husband wants you to stay in the kitchen, then stay in the kitchen. Yeah. And Rousseau's idea was the same. Now, Mary Wollstonecraft, the interesting thing is she is saying the purpose of man is not to be happy. The purpose of man is to know God. Mm-hmm. And women, if we want to allow them to know God... Why would we prevent them from being educated? Yeah, and and this is this is this is a eye opener. I mean, this is a really cool paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. You know, where you go from what is the purpose? Mm-hmm. You know, when we talk about purpose to right. know God. Right. Okay, so if our purpose is to know God, that's you're going to come to different conclusions right. socially than if our purpose is to get back to nature right you know if <laughs> right. that's your purpose yeah. to get back to nature or nietzsche's purpose is just be powerful it's just use your power <laughs> and do what you want and do yeah <laughs> and, and you know exercise it yeah um you know there there's there's causes and effects yeah and uh, you know the the effect of saying um of going, of saying, hey, you know, our purpose is to know God. Yeah. Well, if our purpose is to know God, then then already we're we're not looking at ourselves. Right. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna have to look outside of ourselves. Mm. And so we're already set up just by that idea of getting to know God. We're now setting up a society that is going to be more. Um, equal in education right because the purpose is to know God 
Right. And so it's the child to know God, the woman to know God, the man to know God, the boy to know God, whatever. Right. Everybody's to know God. So that's the purpose. Yeah. So there wouldn't be a withholding of education. Right. Uh, we would want people to know the natural sciences so that they understand the beauty of God in the natural world. Right. And we want them to know laws and, and we'd want them to know um, art and we'd want them to know music. Right. Uh, we'd want them because the more you understand these things, the more you're the more you are in awe mm. of the creator. Yeah. And uh, that's that's the beauty of education. Right. Is uh, and that is really the point of education. It's for us to be able to stand back and be in awe and humbled right. by um, the design and the creation mm. and uh, ultimately the creator. And you could see, even in this topic of education, Rousseau had an idea of education. Mm -hmm. And Mary's is different. So Mary's idea of education is kind of what you're describing. It's introducing man to the creation of God and humbling man to understand who God is. So there's a moral aspect to education in her view. There's an idea of training of virtue and charity and benevolence towards one another, right? And there's actually an aspect where uh, kids are supposed to learn even uh, sexuality in a, in a way. Not that there's like sex ed, right. but there's the idea that teachers are helping kids govern and navigate various uh, gender roles and relationships. And Rousseau's idea of education is no. If you have any moral education then you're actually imposing your ideals on your kids and you're not allowing them to be who they're supposed to be. So when you look at it, you're like, Rousseau won in the end. He was wrong, but he won this debate in the end because Mary Wollstonecraft's idea is not what we see in education today. His ideas are what we see in education today. You don't really restrict. You don't restrain. You just kind of give them power. That was his idea. You just give them power and they'll figure it out. So you just teach them things. You yeah. just make them smarter and smarter and smarter. And our society really prides itself on empowering. Right. You know, whatever that is. Right. <laughs> whatever that means yeah. at the moment. There's a lot of different definitions. Of yeah. That. <laughs> and, and yeah, because it's, it's very confusing, right? <clears throat> yeah. I feel empowered. You know, people go, wow, that's amazing, man. Mm. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, um, and so we put a lot of a lot of emphasis on that kind of education is right. just being feeling powerful, feeling feeling yeah. strong, feeling confident. Right. That's why the most educated people are the most selfish and self-absorbed. You know? <laughs> Which is pretty sad. It's very sad. And you can see her definition of power is power to know God. That's her view. It's not power to do what I want. It's power to honor God. Rousseau's idea is power to do what you want. Mm. And that's the difference. Now, I'm going to start getting into some of my minor criticisms of Mary Wollstonecraft. Yeah, <laughs> so, uh, this is another quote from the book. In the same style, I have been led to imagine that the few extraordinary women who have rushed in eccentrical uh, <laughs> directions out of the orbit prescribed to their sex were male spirits confined by mistake in a female frame. But if it be not philosophical to think of sex when the soul is mentioned, the inferiority must depend on the organs or the heavenly fire, which is to ferment the clay, and it is not given equal proportion. So when you read that, you're like, this is weird, right? Because what she's arguing, and this is where the book strays a little, and where you can see where feminism took a turn. She's theorizing Perhaps there is such a thing as a male and female soul, and perhaps it sometimes gets Mixed switched. Up. So sometimes That's God, exactly, sometimes God blows it on the assembly line and puts the wrong soul in the wrong body. Now you can see why she's saying this, right? She's at a time where women are not educated and they seem to be happy to just have their lot as housewives. And she's a woman who's not content to do that. If you read the book, you could tell she's highly educated. She's really smart. And so in her mind, she's like, why do I want what men want? And all these other women want something totally different. And that's probably what she's referring to when she says like a man's soul. Exactly. Being put 
and in women the, genitalia in a woman body. Yeah, and so she's saying like, well, we'll never really know, so we just got to go off the genitalia. That's mm-hmm. that's what she's saying. But she is giving a weird theory where she's saying, but perhaps is it possible that I'm a male soul in a female body? Now again, what she means by that is I have a masculine temperament. That's what she's saying. Yeah. But what that has turned into, right? Mm-hmm. So once you take her philosophy and you throw out the Christian foundation, which is what it's at the foundation of feminism, mm-hmm. if like what Nietzsche talked about, the death of God, if you kill God from something that Christianity has erected, you don't get something better, you get something worse. So she's just saying, okay, well, if it's to know God and we have souls and I believe that and God's created the souls, why do I have a masculine temperament and all these women have such a different temperament? And she's theorizing, well, maybe there is a such thing as a male soul and maybe I have one. Now, what that's turned into, you throw out God, though, and people say, well, you could be a woman trapped in a man's body. Mm-hmm. So you throw out God and you right. throw out the soul. And now all of a sudden transgenderism makes sense. Right. 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 But it has to start with this kind of <laughs> and you see it as it goes through the waves of feminism. You see this idea develop. So Simone de Beauvoir, who's kind of like first or second wave feminism, depending on who you talk to, Mm -hmm. early 1900s, she argues that what makes a woman is not her biology, but it's some uh, esoteric kind of indefinable quality of feminism that exists in her soul. And she actually says the ability to procreate has nothing to do with being a woman. It's more actually invested in sexual pleasure. And so you see this de-evolution from Mary Wollstonecraft to who says, okay, there's male temperaments and there's female temperaments. God creates the soul. How does it work out that some people are women, but they're more masculine and they're men, they're men, but they're more effeminate. How does that happen? Yeah. You throw that out though. And then you get Simone de Beauvoir who says, well, no, no, no. Like actually your biology has nothing to do with your gender. Mm-hmm. And then you keep going and you get to women like Shulamith Firestone, who's fourth wave feminism, who says, uh, no, actually, there is no such thing as gender. It's totally man-made. It exists in the ether, and it's just whatever you think of it. Right? And then you get to the transgender movement. Which is so right? weird because within within uh, like third-wave feminism, I would say third-wave probably, second, third-wave, you know, you really have women picketing. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's on their boards is their genitalia. Right. I mean, I mean, they specifically <laughs> spell it out on their plaques. That's a picture of an ovary. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And they're and they're like you know very pro their genitalia. Right. You know, so it's like they're in a sense you know, you know like you know get your hands off my genitalia. Yeah. You know, like it's my genitalia. I'll right. do what I want with it. Yeah. You know, and it's like so it, it's funny because. It, it's like there is these little threads mm. that that go through feminism and it's not like the whole movement is predica- predicated on one thread of thought right um there's like these little branches of it yeah you know and uh, they it's not and they kind of sometimes contradict each other or they confuse one another right you know cuz y- you can't you know if you say hey well you know uh you know you know, again, like we talked about in the last podcast, if my mental idea of my gender or my sex is totally detached from my body, then why would you be out picketing right. uh, with, you know, pictures <laughs> ovaries of your ovaries <laughs> on the thing? Makes if it no does, sense. Yeah. yeah, that makes no sense. Yeah. You know, why can't you just in your brain just go, well, I'm this or I'm that and that's the way it is. You can't. Right. You know? Because we can't quite detach ourselves from our bodies. Right. I tend to think that Mary, in reading that 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 um, paragraph, um, that in her day, she saw a social construct. Right. And and she's trying to, she's using male and female um, within a, a box, like right. within a, a, a social box right. structure. Right. You know. And within that box is the what men do mm. and with what women normally do. Right. And so you have what women do, what men do. And anything that's outside of that norm mm. is seemed as odd. Right. And she defines that odd as the male soul. Right. You know, 
that that's what the male soul is is it's like I'm a woman I'm doing something that's kind of odd to other women yeah but it's very common in males right in my culture so um, you know it's almost like she's trying to framework that and, right and she just goes huh maybe there's she probably couldn't see our day, yeah. you know. Oh no, quite in her mind. <laughs> it's definitely not on her radar no. at all. Yeah. So she probably thought, "Wow, like this is just the way it is. Right. Men do this, women do this. I must be an odd duck." Right. You know, how does this work? You know, where um, you know today we just don't have that. Right. You know, we have a structure that's um, much different. Um, yeah. And maybe the same, and maybe just the box is kind of different size. Right. You know, uh, it's not so small, yeah. like in her world. And even uh, in the same vein, so she, she starts also theorizing of like, what are this, the effects of societal constraint? And she starts saying like, well, if we started educating women, is it possible that women really are just as smart as men? Because during the day, the argument for the continuation of the, what they were doing was, well, women are just not as smart as men. You know, you don't really see that women are as smart as men. And her argument is, well, they're uneducated. You can't really judge what the intelligence level of women are as a whole when they're an uneducated part of the population. If you educate them, it's plausible that they're just as smart as men. Now, she's right about that, right? We have proven that. Women are just as smart as men. Now, she takes that one step further, though, and says... Is it possible that women are just as strong as men, but society just hasn't allowed them to exercise their bodies? Then then you see again, and again, she's just theorizing. She's not saying that this is a fact. She's just saying, what if this is true? Yeah. And then that seed takes off in later waves of feminism, and they start saying, well, yeah. And you know what? That is true. Any inequality between men and women is society's fault. Right. Where if you have... X amount of CEOs who are dudes and you have a lower amount of CEOs who are females, that's because society hasn't educated women right and they haven't treated women right. Right. And that's not the point she's making, but you could tell why people are interpreting her thoughts in this way later on, where they're saying, yes, it is all society's fault and therefore if there's any inequality of outcome, it must be because society has oppressed women in some way. Yeah, which is such a, a really... Uh, shallow um conclusion right because uh, there's so much uh variables uh that need to be uh looked at right you know when answering the question of why there's male ceos and why maybe there's not as many women CEOs. <laughs> i like what jordan peterson says about that he's like yeah. the question isn't why are there why aren't there more female ceos the question are why does anyone want to be a CEO? <laughs> yeah. He's like, do you yeah. realize how hard you have to work yeah. to be a CEO? Like what you have to give up? Yeah. And he's like, and the difference in, uh, you know, income, like if you're just a highly efficient worker uh-huh. and you're working, you know, 40, 50 hours a week at like a law firm or a, 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 a corporate business, you're making six figures, maybe seven figures. Uh-huh. And he's like, if you're a CEO, you just make higher seven figures. Yeah. He's like, the difference is really not that big of a deal sure. when it comes to quality of life. And it like really doesn't matter at all. When It's like, how many mansions can you buy? You right. know, how many sports cars can you own? And he's like, why would you sacrifice so much more to get to this position of power when all that is is just a name plaque? Yeah. That's all you're getting. He's like, a lot of responsibility. A lot of responsibility. He's like, what a lot of women do is they start climbing the corporate ladder and they realize there's more to life yeah. than being CEO. And so they, they don't settle, but they essentially just say, I'm going to stay at this highly competent level in which I am only having to sacrifice 40 or 50 hours a week and I'm making decent wages yeah. and I'm going to be with my family. Yeah, well, you know? and, and that's a that's a variable that has variables within it as well. And right. that is just the drive right. of any individual. Right. You know, what drives them. Um, two people can, one can become content with making 40000 a year right. and just living in a studio yeah. in an apartment and yeah. he enjoys his job. Yeah. You know, he might have graduated college with a bachelor's or even a master's, right. but he just doesn't really want to pursue anything. Right. Some people will pursue, some people won't, yeah. you know. You know, I think I find it interesting, too, that argument that um, is made about smarter when we say smarter. Right. Like, what do we mean by that? Right. Um, you know, is 
say someone, you know, um, someone who's raised in a communist society, mm. you know, um, uh, are they smarter? Um, are they less smart? Um, what is the measuring, uh, what is the benchmark of what is smart? And that's the difficult thing because, you know, IQ, when it was first developed, the concept of IQ, which is relatively recent, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, Some people don't know that. They think that, like, they were qualifying IQ back in Jesus' day. It's not true. It's like we're talking like 100 years, maybe less, that they started testing IQ levels. Uh, The problem with testing IQ is that it's supposed to test your innate ability to become educated. Mm -hmm. So just your capacity to learn, retain, and understand information. And then maybe innovate that information that you get. That's what it's supposed to be. But you can't really do that in a bubble. So you have to test something. And so unfortunately, you're not testing IQ level. You're actually testing education level. And that's kind of what you mean. Yeah. Is like, okay, well, what if I find some guy who's living in Africa in some tribal organization? You know, is it possible that people at the level of like Einstein's IQ live there? And the answer is yes, of course they do. But they don't have the means of education that you and I have. And so even though they're very, very high IQ, they're not going to be able to develop beyond what their culture has allowed. Yeah, right? like like I would and, and I like to use the Native American argument because yeah. I always find that the uh, uh, secular progressive will struggle with this because <laughs> I used to be one. <laughs> but um, is this is that when you when you say like if, you, if, if I said, oh, well, you know, a Native American isn't that smart. Right. Isn't as smart as you. Right. You know, because you went to Harvard. Right. Or you went to Stanford. Right. And you got your master's or right. you even got your doctorate, you yeah. know. So are you saying that you're smarter than a Native American? Yeah. You know, that lived, you know, on the land. Yeah. You know, uh, 200 years ago. Right. You know, and, and they would kind of, people kind of go, uh, uh, you know. <laughs> Because you don't want to say that you're smarter than them, right? <laughs> you know, um, and 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 there's a ch- and, and and it's really a f- uh, it's not really a good statement to say right. you're smarter than them because right. if we took you, Harvard student, and put you on the land, you'd die in a day. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> How smart are you? Yeah. That's right. You ain't that smart. Yeah. You know, it, it's 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 contextual, right? It's it's are you smart in that context? Right. Um, you know the answer could be, well, no. Right. You know, so you can take someone who's very good at math, and very smart, and you might put them into an English class, and they really stink. Yeah. You know, and they're just they're not that smart. And that's kind of the the big problem that we're having is that. You know, one big difference between men and women is that women are actually easier to educate than men. Mm -hmm. And that's why women are dominating universities and things like that. Uh, Now, the reason for that is because women tend to have more agreeable temperaments than men do, which means that it's easier to instruct them. Men tend to be a little bit more fiery and obstinate. And so when the teacher's trying to educate, it's usually the dude, it's usually the guy in the class who's like, that's stupid, or like, <laughs> when are we ever gonna use this? You know, you're not usually gonna see the girl doing that. Does it happen? Yeah, but it's more the, the guys that are gonna do that. Because men are, because we're more disagreeable in our temperaments, we actually don't like to be taught that way. We like to kind of work for information. We like to put our hands in things. We like to learn kinetically in the real world. You know, that's how you instruct men. Right. And so a lot of men struggle in the classroom because they they want to argue with the teacher. And, you know, I, I know that you and I are similar in that where I would like to argue with teachers. But the teachers that I respected and I learned a lot from are the ones who could effectively argue back. Right. Right. The ones who didn't just say, well, shut up, you know, and just listen. Right. But the ones who were like, that's wrong and this is why it's wrong. You know how, you know how, you know how different, you know, men and women can be. It's, it can be like this. Like last night, you know, I get up at four in the morning. Why? Because I know it's snowing. Yeah. And I know it snowed. (laughs) And, and, And the first thing that comes in my mind is. You make sure the pipes are wrapped. Right. You know, make sure, you know, everything outside's in the right spot. Right. You know, and and the reason why is because you learn that over time. Right. You know, you learn how 
things function, yeah. how the pipes work, yeah. you know, how your house is built. You know, you tend to be really into that. Not that, not that women, there aren't women that are into that too. Yeah. But a lot of men, a lot of boys grow up, you know, thinking like that. Right. And learning that way. Where I have, you know, two other ladies in the house that live with me. Totally oblivious. Yeah. Not even a clue. Yeah. Like, not not even a thought. Right. You know, about it. Right. There's not like, oh, man, what's going on outside? Mm. Oh, man, is everything okay outside? Mm. Oh, man, maybe this needs to get protected or maybe that needs to get done or maybe I left that out or maybe, yeah. you know, there's nothing like that. Yeah. Which leads to my final critique of her book. <laughs> yeah. And that is the place of chivalry. Yeah. So... She has this really interesting section where she talks about chivalry. And her main point is that she feels as though one of the reasons why women have become content to not be educated is because men do everything for them. And so she says, should you as a man, because this is where she's very different than modern feminists. Mm -hmm. She does believe that men are stronger than women. Mm -hmm. And she says, can you as a man provide and protect your wife? And should you do that? And she says, yes. And she actually has a very lengthy section where she argues for masculinity in man. And she actually says, because she's in the upper crust, she's like, I think a lot of the elites that are around me are kind of sissy men. You know, I, think yeah. that, I think they do better becoming more masculine. And so she actually argues for the positivity of masculinity, which is interesting. But she says, you should do that for your wife and your family, but should you do it for a stranger? And she says, no. She's like, so don't hold the door open for me. Don't, like, if you don't know me, don't hold the door open for me. Don't give me a handkerchief when I sneeze. Don't say God bless you. Don't put your coat on a puddle. Don't give me your hand. You know, to, to so do. how do you think that was taken in, in today's world? So what she's arguing is that men shouldn't be chivalrous except for the people in their own home. Now, in today's world, what, how they're taking it is that chivalry is a way that men oppress women, which is not what she said. She says that it's possible that because women's lives are so easy, they don't want to be educated. And so men should practice chivalry, but only at home. Now, I disagree with her there, but she, what people are taking that to mean is that all chivalry is a way that men oppress women. So if you're a dude and you've ever hold, held a door open for women, right, you're probably in L.A. You're keeping, them, <laughs> yeah. you're keeping them from and education. And you get yelled at. Yeah. Right. And, and, that, and that's yeah. happened before. Oh, yeah. Right? Where you hold the door open for a woman and the woman says, hey, I can open my own door. Right. And that's that idea yeah. of like, hey, I don't need your help. Yeah. And you might not be thinking like, hey, I'm not not saying that you're not educated. <laughs> <laughs> that just, you're not strong enough to just, open a door. Yeah, I just yeah. thought it would be nice. Yeah. You know, that kind of idea. But And here's the thing that she missed. And this is a, a major criticism that some people of her day had of her. She believed that there are these kind of virtues that are living out in the abstract. And you don't need a society to help you understand them. You just do them. So in her idea, she's like, well, men should just know that they're supposed to be kind and loving to women. The critique of Mary Wollstonecraft is the reason why we as a society have developed chivalry is because men naturally don't want to provide and protect women. They want to use and abuse women. Hmm. That's what's happened throughout history. So if you take the strength of men and you don't aim it in a positive direction, then it's going to be aimed in an oppressive direction. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of chivalry is we teach young men that women are to be looked after and protected and taken care of. And you sacrifice for them in these little ways and these big ways, right? The big ways would be you go to war and you lay down your life for your country. You protect the women, even women you don't know, you die for. That's your role as a man, right? And you hold the door open for them and you, you, you open the door from the car and you help them down out of the carriage. and. You protect them because that's your role. That's what you're supposed to do. When cultures started to inculcate chivalry, you actually see women being treated much better as a whole in and outside of marriage. Mm -hmm. Cultures that don't teach chivalry have very oppressive men inside because, again, if strength is not harnessed to protect, it will be used to oppress. And me and my wife were actually talking about this a little bit ago where she was saying, you know, why is it that men are like just dominating women even today? Uh, it's March is Women's History Month, and Women's History Month is being celebrated 
by a man, right? So they picked the, the woman to represent Women's History Month. I can't remember his name, but it's a guy who transitioned to become a woman, right? Woman of the Year is a man, right? The guy who went to the... Men win yeah, again. Men win again. And she asked me, she's like, why do you think men are doing this? Because you don't see it the reverse, right? Man of the Year isn't a woman, you know? Like, you know, the biggest bodybuilder is not a woman who transitioned to be a man. We thought it would be The Rock, right? but now it's... <laughs> Now it's, now it's this girl, yeah. <laughs> but like, it's, why is it not happening? I said because if you don't condition men to sacrifice for women and put their strength towards protecting women, they oppress them. Yeah. And so, in order to dispel of what we call toxic masculinity, we've actually guaranteed that it's come back into the culture. Yeah. Right. The toxicity of masculine oppression and denigration of women is going to come back into the culture powerfully. Yeah, when you get rid of chivalry. When you get rid of chivalry. In order to have chivalry, you have to have a difference between men and women. Right. And so when you break down that there is no difference difference between men and women, then you give men the wonderful opportunity (laughs) to use their power uh, against women. Right. And... Uh, and in a sense, make them lose their own identity mm. and maybe their value in the society. Right. So chivalry would be, you know, you don't just do it because it's right, but you do it because there's value. Mm. There's value in women. You go to war, whatever you're doing, hold the door open because there's something women can do that you cannot right. do. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and if you get rid of women... You know, then in today's world, if you get rid of women, then you force government and scientists to uh, come together in a plutocracy, Hmm. um, uh, a money-making machine to to have babies. That's what you force. Hmm. You know, because babies need to be made. Right. That needs to happen. Right. So that's a, a given. You know, so you can see how all this stuff breaks down. When you break down chivalry, then you break down what you're doing is you're saying women don't have a, a unique value. Mm. And when you're saying women don't have a unique value, then they lose their identity of what makes them unique. Right. And then you basically put um, now you've create in a hyper uh, capitalistic society, you create a business, mm. a money making opportunity. Right. Uh, so instead of independence for human beings, uh, we can have children independently from government. We can have children independent from uh, scientists mm. and the lab, you know. Now we need places like the Wuhan lab or whatever it is, right. you know. Now we need those places to be able to cultivate a, a embryonic, you know, farm. Right. You know, which sounds weird, yeah. but that's what we have. Absolutely. You know, is farms of children. We're farming kids. And that's a, that's one thing. It's not in the book, but maybe that's the problem that's not in the book. Yeah. When she's talking about knowing God, she is ignoring or failing to mention the fact that there is a way that men know God and there's a way that women know God, mm-hmm. that we have roles And as we exercise those unique roles as a man or a woman, I'm getting to know a unique aspect of God that is unique to me. So there is something that women can learn about God through bearing children that a man will never, ever, ever be able to understand. That's something unique to women. That's something that God has allowed them to to experience through their role of motherhood. There is something unique that a father can experience with his kids that a woman will never, ever be able to understand. And they're going to understand God the Father through that role. And it's, it's no mistake that I was thinking about this the other day, that there's that weird passage in the Bible where it's actually, it translates that God is the many-breasted one. Mm. And it's never translated that way in your English because people are probably like, ooh, I don't, I don't like that. That's weird. But that's what the word in Hebrew means because it's the idea that God has a maternal role for the world, that God births the world. He creates it and he nourishes it and protects it and gives his body for it, right? The son of God and giving his body for the birth of his church, right? The birth of his bride 
is a picture of that maternal role, mm. right? We're born again, mm. right? What what causes us to be born again? The death of the Son and the in, impartation of the Holy Spirit as a result. So there's something unique in the roles that we take on as male and female that help us comprehend God. And she doesn't ever mention that. And that's kind of a bummer. Now, obviously, later on, once you get to these other women, the idea of roles become just oppressive institutions. She doesn't actually argue that roles are oppressive institutions, but she also doesn't argue that they're important. Hmm. And that's that's problematic. Yeah. But later on, they become oppressive. I think it was Shulamith Firestone who said that um, uh, pregnancy is the quiet concentration camp of women. Yeah. <laughs> it's like just like a terrible, terrible phrase. But yeah. That's where you get to. Which is confusing because if there's no roles, then there's no roles. Right. Exactly. I mean, then what do you have? Exactly. Nothing. Yeah. You know, it's like a company. You know, there's no... <laughs> With no positions. No positions. Yeah. Like, well, we have no positions. Well, what do you do? Uh, what he does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, what does he do? Uh, there's no roles. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> You know, it's the there's a way that seems right, and in the end, it leads to destruction. Right, and that's what that what happens when we don't start with that premise of knowing God. Right, right. There's a way that seems right. All the secular atheists, we're all all of us. I include myself in there. Um, when we when we try to do the right thing, there's a hint of there's a remnant that there there's some kind of overhang of that this is the right thing to do. Right. And, um, but we can't seem to get it right. Mm. You know, we, we always move in the wrong direction, mm. you know. Um, so anyway, great podcast. Yeah. Mary. Mary Wollstonecraft. Wollstonecraft. What a name. Yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you guys have to look her up. Check it out. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Check out runninglight.org to begin our two video series, Take Flight and Love or Lust. You can also send us questions on Twitter at Running Light or on our runninglight.org podcast page. Like us on Facebook at Running Light Ministries, Psalm 36.8. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures.